Please pray with me. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank You that we can come before You today with uh, open hands ready to receive all the bounty of grace and goodness that You have to offer. We come, Lord, empty-handed, knowing that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer You. We can come with hearts with a faith full of belief, Lord, that You are a good God who blesses us, who has made peace with us through Your Son, and who desires us to live in obedience to You and to trust, to trust in who You are. We anticipate the truth of Your Word going forward this morning and pray that it would be a blessing to Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the same passage as our Scripture reading this morning. It's Things like this are always worth hearing at least a couple or a few times. It's often said that the story of Jesus is the greatest story ever told. They even made a movie about it. In Matthew 5, we begin the greatest sermon ever preached. As commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with a section known as the Beatitudes. Some would take that and say your attitude should be this way toward things concerning the kingdom, toward the person and work of Christ. But among other things, what the Lord Jesus is introducing us to in this passage is kingdom living, Christian character, as we see the kingdom of God unfold through the work of the gospel of Christ. So please draw your attention to verse 1, and I will read... I will read through verse 10, actually through verse 11. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Forgive me, verse 12 as well. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this would be a wonderful study to go through all of the Beatitudes one at a time, and some even are so deep they merit a couple of weeks of study in and of themselves. But I want to focus on one this morning that deals with a great blessing for the Christian, one that I think sets our identity apart from the rest of this world. You know, if we want to, sometimes we try to sum up what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a kingdom citizen, I think this is one of them. The kingdom citizen, the believer in Jesus Christ, is a peacemaker. Verse 9, that will be the center of our study today. And for some of you this morning, you may struggle with this. You may struggle with being a peacemaker. I may come right out of the gate and just say that. Some of you really struggle being at peace with others. Some of you are afraid of being a peacemaker. Some of you are hesitant because of what that may mean for you. Being a peacemaker is difficult. Some of you in here know you need to make peace with someone, and yet you are hesitating. 
You know it needs to happen, but you've put it off and you've thought of a million excuses of why you can't, why you will not go to that person and make peace with them. But the fact is, to truly be a Christian is to be a peacemaker. And we find that attached to that is a great blessing. Blessed, Jesus says, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What is that blessing? We'll look at the four. For they shall be called sons of God. And you look at the list that we've just read, and many of these things here in this introductory part of the Sermon on the Mount are not things that we typically associate with what it is to be blessed. Blessed are the poor. That's the first thing that Jesus has to say. Blessed are the poor. You don't think of a poor person being or feeling or recognizing that they are indeed blessed. You know, we think, blessed are the bankers, for they are rich, right? It's typically more our style. We do associate blessing with lots of stuff, with abundance. And to a degree, that's justified. That's true. I mean, even the word blessed refers to something that means to be enlarged, right? We see growth in a particular area. There is a recognition of abundance. I think we should look at it first and foremost as God's favor. We have abundant favor by God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a realization that the Lord would want us to have. We have to understand that we are blessed. We are a blessed people. We are a constant recipients, beneficiaries, as it were, of God's good grace, of his gifts, of his manifest glory. I would say furthermore, because Jesus has said it so, this person knows that they are blessed. I think the people that are initially hearing this perhaps don't think that because of how Jesus describes them. Blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are those who mourn. How is a person who is mourning aware of their blessedness? We, we typically think of mourning. We connect that with loss and with misery, not with blessing, not with God's favor. And yet, Jesus comes and in typical Jesus fashion, he, he reverses the narrative. He clarifies our thinking and tells us how we should really be seeing things. And these are blessed people. right? Think, think of the next one. Blessed are the gentle. You mean the meek? Isn't meekness weakness? How can one be weak and see themselves as blessed? How can one be humble and consider that blessedness? Remember, in this kind of society, especially Roman society, Humility was not seen as a virtue. Meekness was not seen as virtuous. It was seen as weakness. But this, the, the blessed person here understands that in all of these forms, they live under divine favor with accompanying happiness and joy. And Jesus wants us to know that. You may not have known it before reading this passage, but now you do. We should know we are blessed because we are all of these things. And so what this tells us, again, is what a Christian looks like, what the Christian attitudes ought to be like. And notice here that there is an order in progress. It's interesting that most of the pastors and theologians I consulted for this to get some insight from them all had the same thing to say about this. But there is an order in progress to this passage. And they would say, furthermore, that being a peacemaker represents the top rung of this. See, all of these things... We understand that this matters immensely to God, all of these things, but especially being a peacemaker. And it has been said that this is the most challenging one. I think if you 
briefly reviewed this, you would agree. Being a peacemaker, practically speaking, is the most difficult one of these. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. The Spurge. Observe carefully, and you will see that each one rises above those which precede it. Now listen to what he says. The first beatitude is by no means so elevated as the third, nor the third as the seventh. Now pause there. Look at the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think about how simple that is, right? Now, only God can truly instill by his spirit a sense of spiritual impoverishment and bankruptcy. Those things are spiritually discerned. We do not understand what it is to be that way unless God informs us and changes our heart. But really, that's all that happens, right? You just have to come to an understanding that you lack what it takes. Yeah, you do not have what it takes to stand before God. Right? You, need, you rely on the merits of Jesus Christ. You rely on His righteousness. And that's the first step, really, to, 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 to seeing that transforming work of being a Christian, of being born again, to take place. You have to come to this place where you understand that you have nothing poor in spirit, down to the inner man. You are empty. You are bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God. As soon as you realize that, the blessing is, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You belong to heaven. You are under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Now, continuing this quote. There is a great advance from the poor in spirit to the pure in heart and the peacemaker. I have said that they rise, but it would be quite as correct to say that they descend. For from the human point of view, they do so. To mourn is a step below and yet above being poor in spirit. And the peacemaker, while the highest form of Christian, will find himself often called upon to take the lowest place for peace's sake. Remind you of anyone who did that? The Lord Jesus. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? but made himself like a servant. And for that reason, God exalted him. So that the name of the Lord Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So the peacemaker has a poorness of spirit. It takes humility. It takes immense humility for the peacemaker to go and make peace. That's precisely what being a peacemaker means. You go and you make peace. That means interposing yourself. That means involving yourself. And on a practical matter, on a practical level, it means knowing your church, knowing who needs to have peace or make peace, or you know who you need to make peace with. And I think that's what this is primarily talking about. When we talk about making peace, it's peace man to man. It's one of the things we underestimate as it regards the work of the gospel, right? We talk about the gospel where God makes peace with man, right? That reconciling work of Jesus Christ that is so eloquently spelled out in Colossians 1 and the letter to the Corinthians, right? We are ministers of reconciliation. Man to God, God to man, man to crea- or God to creation even. We don't often think of that work of the gospel as making peace between Man and man. Now think of how profound this is. I mean, in a sense, Jesus is preparing the people here for the new co- the ministry of the new covenant to include the Gentiles. He's making peace with the Gentiles. He is making peace between Jew and Gentile. Never in history have you seen such an ethnic division anywhere. 
Jews despised Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were unwelcome. You go into a Gentile's house, you were unclean. And yet, now, through the gospel, they have been declared clean. So there's preparation at work here. So blessed would be that Jew who heard these words, believed them, and then when Christ is risen and ascends to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit descends, and that great work of the gospel is going forward, man, you, your head better be in the right place. Because that would be a mind-blowing reality. Suddenly the Gentiles are incorporated into the people of God. You have to be a peacemaker. I would add this. As each of these leads to the other from verses 3 to 9, they get more difficult. Each successive characteristic gets more difficult, but there is a great blessing attached to each. Right? One leads to the, to the next. So we look back. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it is purity of heart that leads to one being a peacemaker. And I will draw more on that soon. But the fact is, is that the church is in desperate need of peacemakers. Especially in light of the, the, the ongoing chaos in society in general. We do not live in a society that is filled with peacemakers. That's definitely not the first place our mind goes. We may talk a lot about peace. We may try to manufacture peace, but just as the prophets indicted Israel many centuries ago, we say peace, peace, but there is no peace. There's no real peace. If God is not there, if God is not the maker of peace, there is no real peace. And so we need peacemakers. And I would say this, every Christian is called to be a peacemaker. So you can look at verse 9 and, and not say, does that apply to me? Or that does not apply to me. You say, how does that apply to me? In the here and now, as a faithful church member, as a servant of Jesus Christ, how can I be a faithful and effective peacemaker? Paul reminds us of this very pursuit in Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And we don't say peace at all costs, right? We don't say, let's put our differences aside at the expense of truth, at the expense of Scripture, or at the expense of Christ's honor. We pursue peace precisely for those reasons and from that starting point. We are called to be peacemakers. Listen to what Matthew Poole says, drawn from the Puritans today. The world blesseth the boisterous, unquiet party of it that can never be still but are continually thinking of more worlds to conquer and blowing up the coals of war, division, and sedition. But they are blessed indeed who study to be quiet, seeking peace and pursuing it, and are so far from sowing the seeds of discord or blowing those coals that their great study is to make peace between God and man and between, listen to this, this is the main application, and between a man and his neighbor, doing this in obedience to God and out of a principle of love to God and men, for those that do so shall approve themselves like unto God to be his children for so they shall be called. So this is the pursuit of peace, right? We're not talking just about the absence of conflict. We can't, we can't think of, we can't define peace that way and continue to think biblically. It's not just the absence of conflict. You know, think of the Korean War. The Korean War never really ended, but there was an armistice. There was a ceasefire at the 38th parallel. But what does a ceasefire give both parties to do? Opportunity to do. Reload. 
And so since 1953, when the armistice was declared, both sides have been reloading. I mean, it's said today, there's probably, there'd probably be some disagreements, that, it, that, it, that, the, that if the Korean War between the North and the South were reignited, North Korea has so much artillery, within hours they could completely level Seoul, South Korea, one of the biggest cities in the world full of millions and millions of people. It would just, it would be so bad, so catastrophic. It'd be really ugly. So it prevails upon the Christian to think of peace as beyond that. And we've described peace many a time because it is that important, right? We go back to the Old Testament root of peace, which is shalom, speaks to wholeness, completeness, speaks to a particular rhythm, right? To be in, to be in rhythm with, with God's authority. That life is as it should be, right? We think of peace, we think of fellowship, we think of restoration, right? Things are, things are operating according to their design. And so that's the peace we are to bring to one another, right? We can't, we can't make peace between man and God. We can't make peace between God and man. We're helpless, right? Only God can make peace with us. Only God can awaken a dead man's heart to the power and truth of the gospel, so that man is reconciled to a holy God. However, God does give us the wherewithal to bring that shalom, to bring that restoration of peace between ourselves, and especially, I would say, in this context, for us, to, for our purposes this morning, between ourselves and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He does. He equips us with that. And for us to not use that, for us to put the peacemaking process aside, is a severe indictment on us. I would say that is wicked. We must recognize one another as fellow heirs, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we all serve the same king, we all obey the same authority, that we are part of the body, that we belong to one another, right? So that old phrase, stop hitting yourself, applies here. Can you imagine the body of Christ going like this? Over and over and over again. What's going on? It's like some kind of spiritual Tourette's or something? Like just, just hit... Who does that, right? And yet we do it all the time when we refuse to make peace within the body. That's why I said some of you are going to find this really challenging this morning. And some of you are going to be like, well, yeah, yeah, that's me. Definitely, I'm a peacemaker. Go peacemaking. And, you know, praise the Lord if that's, if that's descriptive of you. But many of us really struggle with this. We don't want an armistice. We don't want silence. We don't want the absence of conflict. We want the presence of shalom where the relationships within this church are how they ought to be, right? And what underscores that relationship? Love, right? You, if there is no peace, you will have a nearly impossible time showing consistent godly love toward one, someone, toward pursuing their highest good in Christ, if you are not at peace with them. Because a lack of peace will limit your proximity to that person. And that is very dangerous, especially in a small church like ours. You know, if you were a mega church, you could just sit on the opposite end of the auditorium, right? Just stay, you know, we, we, we can do like everyone else does. We can just avoid our problems and pretend they don't exist. But not here. Not here. No more ceasefires. We want an actual peace. A peace built on the truth of Scripture that aims toward glorifying our King, the Lord Jesus, who brought us peace. And I get it, it's hard. It's hard to understand the nature of conflict sometimes. It's hard to articulate it. Sometimes it's very hard to even know that you are at odds with someone. There's a lot that goes into it. 
Sometimes we just misunderstand the conflict going on. I mean, think about the various wars going on in our world at this point. I mean, how many of you understand what is actually going on between Ukraine and Russia? If you do, congratulations. I have no idea. You know, on one hand, that Vladimir Putin's just a big commie bully and he's trying to resurrect the Russian Empire, right? And poor Ukraine. That's one of the narratives. But then you have another narrative. Oh, well, you know, there's Russians that are being persecuted by Ukrainian Nazis and Putin's just, Putin's just a misunderstood tyrant. Tyrant may, he may be, but he's a misunderstood tyrant. And, you know, he's just defending his countrymen from Nazis. I really don't know. It's a lot of hearsay. Now, thankfully, when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to peace and reconciliation and the pursuit of shalom and all that, we have, from the pages of Scripture, an ability to clarify what is going on. It's called going to the other person and telling them you want to be at peace with them. And then we use Scripture as our guiding authority to bring us to unity and understanding and a mutual affirmation, reaffirmation often, of our love and goodwill toward one another. And we have every reason to pursue that because of the love and goodwill we receive from God. And understand too, in the church, guys, we're, we're not at war with each other. You know, we're not the... Why, why consider another saint, another fellow saint, the enemy? That's lunacy. And it always ends in catastrophe. We may not know what the Russians are doing. We may not know what the Ukrainians are doing. We may not know what George Soros and Klaus Schwab are doing. But we know what God is doing. And so we have to think about what God is doing. And we know what God does is that he desires peace. And so this continues to be one of the greatest issues the church deals with today. I believe it's in, uh, I want to say Psalm 55. If you want to turn there with me. Listen to Psalm 55, Psalm of David. He mourns over the division, the strife in Jerusalem, right? So here's the, here's the obvious parallel. What is Jerusalem in the Old Testament? It's the city of God. It's the city of the king. It's where God's presence dwells. Who, is the, who does the church belong to? The new Jerusalem, where the city and glory of God dwells. Conflict then conflict now, but listen to how David mourns. He says in verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, but I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Let's just go dwell in the wilderness for a while and escape all this turmoil. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and Tempest. Oh boy. Go to verse 11. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. Right? He's seen, verse 9, I've seen violence and strife in the city. Can be a rich illustration of what often befalls a church who shrinks from this sacred duty of making peace. And listen to this. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. I mean, think about that, how we can relate to that. You know, let the unbeliever curse us. Let the unbeliever betray us. Let the unbeliever misrepresent us. We can live with that. Most of us can live with that because they don't understand. But listen to where, why David is so crushed by this. 
He says, if it's the one who hates me and has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We had, we who had sweet fellowship together. Remember when we sat on the porch together and we drank great whiskey and we smoked long bottom leaf together and we reminisced about the goodness of God outpouring on our lives. Remember when we did that and we ate sweet meats and life was good. You remember that? And it's like all that's been put away. It's like it never happened. And that's really sad. And, and, and if you're going through that, that should crush you. You can relate to what David's going through. Walked in the house of God and the throngs you worship together. You let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Right? Some think that David is mourning over the betrayal of his son Absalom in this, who tried to usurp his throne. And Absalom should have known better since the promises were indeed given to his father David. But we see this. We've, we've lamented often. We've been crushed in spirit often over the, the reality of broken relationships that just can't seem to be mended. And typically, we just, we just ignore what it's actually going on without making any definitive peace to bring shalom back in the relationship. And you think about the wider world, right? The wider, unbelieving world that has yet to experience the gospel of peace showing up at its doorstep by faith, and yet that is why we're called to be peacemakers. Everywhere we go, we bring peace. Think about who we serve. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah describes Him. We serve the Prince of Peace. We are a kingdom of peace. And so we should be citizens that bring peace. And so that's my introduction, friends. Let's go to the actual outline. First, I want to talk about the reasons for peace. Because some of you may have come up to this point and you're like, well, why? Why should I be a peacemaker? I think the first reason is obvious. We're, <laughs> I just kind of talked about them. But the main one is because peace is in God Himself. We serve a God of peace. You think about the relationship, the intra-Trinitarian relationship. God at His, you want to say, if you want to say core, in His very being in essence, is a God of peace. There is no conflict, conflict between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You never see disagreement, you never see strife, you never see infighting or quarreling. It's interesting if you look at even Greek or pagan Roman mythology. I mean, look at any mythology that is not Hebrew in nature. All you see, you, first of all, there's many gods, there's not just one god, there's many gods, and there's always, there's always infighting. And not just fighting, there's, there's betrayal, there's murder, there's theft, there's rape. The gods are a mess. And yet when we look at the God of Scripture, we see perfect shalom. We see perfect order, perfect harmony, perfect agreement. Think, man, no wonder God works so efficiently. We see the God of peace. He is called the God of peace in Philippians 4. Right? Meditate on these things. You know, if you do these things, God, the God of peace will be with you. Romans tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I mean, isn't that fascinating, the irony there? The God of Shalom will go to war and will crush the serpent. He will crush the enemy. And that's what peace does. It crushes that conflict. It crushes that disunity. And brings the relationship into a God-honoring place. 
of fellowship, unity, worship. That's our first reason, because peace is in God Himself. Just We just look at God and see a God of perfect peace. And we should say, well, if God is like that, I want, I want to be that way. I, I want my relationships to be that way. Especially with my fellow believers in Jesus Christ. It must be that way. And here's the second thing. It comes out of the very character of God. We are peacemakers because God commands it so. God has instructed us to this very thing. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. I mean, that's a special, that's a special calling. God has called us to many things. He's called us to righteousness. He's called us to holiness. But He has also called us to peace. A life of peace and a life of, to add to that, a life of peacemaking. And those who pursue peace, those who make peace, have a great joy about them, a great contentment because they are able to see the work of God. In Proverbs 12, verse 20, we read this, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. We have so much incentive. Counselors of peace have joy. Hebrews 12, we're called to strive for peace. I was listening to one uh, sermon this, actually it was yesterday, and he said he, he understands that this is a process, right? Sometimes peace doesn't come overnight. We have to keep returning and applying that peacemaking process with all the bumps, he says, all the bumps along the way. And he says, in this striving for peace, you plan the work and then you work the plan. Peacemaking often in, in, involves strategy. You don't want to go into that conversation half-cocked. You don't want to go into it over-aggressively. But you want to go deliberately. So you plan the work and then you work the plan. And as Hebrews says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. We do this against the backdrop of Christ's peacemaking, reconciling work. Colossians 1.20 right? And for Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through His blood on the cross. And that is a universal, all-reaching peace. That all that, that because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross through the shedding of His blood, everything will be put in its proper orientation toward the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have this peace and we are, we are to make peace and take peace wherever we go. It's not, it's not optional. It's some, not something we turn on and turn off. We are called to make peace. God has called us to peace. He commands it so. And so we are at it constantly. We are applying it regularly. And so here's the next thing. There is the requirement of the peacemaker. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it take? Do you have what it takes to be a peacemaker? Well, absolutely not. Not in and of yourself. The good news is that God has what it takes and He will give you all the means necessary as a believer in Jesus Christ to be a peacemaker. So what is required? Well, let's simplify this a little bit because we find this we find the answer to this initially in the Sermon on the Mount. We find in the previous verse, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as we said, this is sequential. One builds on top of the next. So if you want to be a peacemaker, first you have to be pure. You have to have a heart purified by the Gospel. You have to devote yourself to righteous living. That means you have to be at peace yourself. If you are not at peace with yourself, you're going to have a very hard time bringing that, being a peacemaker, right? We can't offer 
what we ourselves do not possess. It's very simple. So if we are conflicted, if if we are at war, we have to be very careful because we may heighten conflict if we insert ourselves into a situation without having the peace of God ourselves. You know, having all that, all that distraction, all that baggage, all of those misplaced priorities, all those moral and spiritual compromises, going to be very hard to be a peacemaker. Think about, uh, I always think of Luke 10.40, right? This, this uh, episode where Martha and, and Mary are hanging out with Jesus. Mary's listening to Jesus, sitting at His feet, and Martha is in the kitchen. And it says that she was distracted. It says that Martha was a combination of two Greek words, perispao, which is a combo Greek word which means to draw around or to drag around. She was weighed down by many things. She was preoccupied. And many of us are like that. We're preoccupied with so many things that we cannot even begin to focus on being a peacemaker. And that I think is something that describes well, don't miss this, something that describes well those who are pure in heart. It doesn't just mean that we're cleansed. It doesn't just mean that we are undefiled. It means, it points to the reality that we have one priority. We have one priority. And that is to glorify God. Our priority is to bring honor to Christ. And we do that by trusting Him. We do that by obeying Him. But He is our sole preoccupation. And that preoccupation is not continually and regularly distracted or drawn, or not drawn away by other things, by all these other compromises. So you see what's going on. That, that's, a, that's a person who is pure in heart. Only one thing matters to them. And only one thing should matter to us, and that is seeing Christ honored by the prevailing of peace and the making of peace. Here's another reason I think is, is, well, is well put. We, what is required, I would say, is understanding that peace is the default mode of the church. I think some of us don't get that. When, when Christ accomplished what He did, and when He brings Jews and Gentiles into His body, that's our default mode. Our default mode is peace. That is, that is the position on top of the hill. And we have to understand that the, the hill is be, has, has been taken. So we shouldn't see the peacemaking process as something that is nigh near impossible. We should see it as something that is inevitable if only we humble ourselves and are obedient to that call to be a peacemaker. It's very reasonable. Absolutely reasonable. Peace is in God Himself. God commands it so, and because it's the default mode of the church. How do we know that? Well, we read this in Ephesians 2. For He Himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now see, some of us are intent. We, it's like we, we go and we, and we observe the wreckage. We see all these bricks that have been broken down in devastating fashion. Like, was it hit by a mortar shell or something? Because whatever happened here was profound. And that is what Christ did to that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He broke down that barrier. And sometimes we just, we just want to pick up those bricks and we just 
stack them. We just try restacking them. Got to build up those walls. Can't have anything to do with that person because they've offended me or because there seems to be just this misunderstanding that cannot be rectified or because you're being dismissive of them. I've warned you against that many times about being dismissive of your fellow Christian. It's hard to be dismissive as a default mode when you understand that your default mode in the church is peace. Anything else? Anything else is a distraction. Anything else is a departure from how, from the very reality that Christ has established for us in himself. Now, listen to this. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What did it take for this enmity to die? To, to, to die is that the Son of God had to die. So he says, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. Thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. See, there's, a, there's, another, there's another passage that says, how beautiful are those feet that show up. You go on a long journey, your, your feet are going to be crusty and dirty and smelly, but they are going to be beautiful feet because of the news they bring. And it's news of peace. So he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So Jew and Gentile, for through him we both have our access in one piece to the Father. So if there is enmity, enmity between you and another Christian, remember that that is not natural. It is not usual. It is not good. It should be the exception. It is an aberration. It is a perversion. And it should not be characteristic of those who call themselves Christians. It should not be characteristic via Matthew 5 of those who call themselves sons of God. Peace is the default, and that is why we should pursue it. Next category, the requirement of peace. So here we go, getting back to where we came from. The requirement of peace. Where does this peace come from? In order to be a peacemaker, you must be pure in heart. Think about what James says. And you'll see how, how, how peacemaking follows purity. If there's no purity in your life, there's no purity in your heart. Not only have you not really seen God and don't understand Him, but you will not be able to be a peacemaker if your life is full of compromises. So listen to this. Uh, James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Now keep that word in mind, hypocrisy. Right? Hard to be peaceable when you have all those compromises, as we've said. Now listen to James 1, 5 through 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to you all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. See, there's that compromise again. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, it's hard to bring the stability, right? Inherent in shalom is stability. And if you are a wishy-washy Christian, if you don't even know who you are in Christ, if you look in the mirror, if you look at Scripture, and you see reflected back uh, to yourself about what God says to you about who you are, and then immediately walk away and forget, you are a double-minded man. You are unstable as water. How then are you going to bring stability to your relationships if you 
go preaching something that you, you do not have. Like I said, you're going to bring more disorder. You're going to bring more chaos. You're going to bring more division. Deal with yourself first. To bring the peace of God, you must have the peace of God. Now, J- James is so wonderful in spelling this out. He tackles it again in chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures, your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. So here's that double-minded people described once again. But what is the source of quarrels? What, see, what is the, what explains the lack of shalom in these relationships? What explains it? He says, the pleasures that wage war in your members. War! Really? There's war! There's conflict in the inner man! How are, how is peace going to be achieved? How is anyone going to be a peacemaker if we're all walking around and there's all this war going on in between us, within us? How then are we going to pursue peace? That's why James, at this point in the book, there is a strict call to repentance, a call to godly sorrow, almost going back to the first beatitude. Recognize that you are poor and miserable. Repent. Repent now. It's the same mindset that that, that Elijah uses to describe Israel. Remember the, the the great battle on the mountain? Limping between two opinions, tripping between the twigs. They just cannot make up their mind, right? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. But don't think for a minute that you can do both. No wonder there was no peace in Israel. No peace in Israel because they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to serve both gods. And we know, and we know who God is. He says, serve me and no other. No gods before me. No, no other gods in my presence. Serve the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. And that is the requirement, right? The requirement of the peacemaker is to be pure in heart. Now turn with me very quickly to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4. Listen to this. Listen to the progress here. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise dwell on these things, the things which you have heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Right? Practice what is pure and the God of peace will be with you. Same progress as in the Sermon on the Mount. Same progress as mentioned in James. The wisdom that is above, from above is pure, then peaceable. If there is no purity, I mean, this is a radical call to repentance, is it not? A radical commitment to the things of God. If there is, and that may be the cause, and we have to each examine our hearts. Is there no peace because there's so much compromise in my life? There is such a lack of stability that I cannot begin to go make peace with others because there is no peace in the inner man. There must be purity first. There must be a passionate pursuit and practice of righteousness if we are ever going to experience the shalom that God offers in His own body. First purity, then one can be a peacemaker, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be God. If you cannot see God, you cannot see the peace that God commands and offers. You're never going to recognize it. You're never going to be able to identify it because you're so compromised. 
Repent from that compromise. Pursue purity. The purity that is only found in Christ. And then, commit yourself to be a peacemaker. Listen to John Calvin, going back to this blessing. He says, happy are the peacemakers. By peacemakers, he means those who not only seek peace and avoid quarrels as far as lies in their power, but who also labor to settle differences among others, who advise all men to live at peace and take away every occasion of hatred and strife. There are good grounds for this statement, as it is a laborious and irksome employment to reconcile those who are at variance. Man, do tell. Persons of a mild disposition who study to promote peace are compelled to endure the indignity of hearing reproaches, complaints, and remonstrances on all sides. So remember that, because now we come to my final point. I would say second to final. Here we go. The readiness of the peacemaker. So this is the challenge. So you want to be a peacemaker. You must be ready. You must be prepared. First of all, of course, as we've already highlighted, you must be at peace with God. You must have developed a habit of being at peace with your brother in Christ and peace within yourself, right? You are pure of heart. Must put away compromise. Here's the second thing. If you want to be ready to be a peacemaker, be ready to grow some thick skin. Because if you try to insert yourself into the various wars and rumors of wars that go on even within the congregation of God, as John Calvin just said, There's going to be reproaches, complaints, and remonstrances on all sides. Being a peacemaker is not for the cowardly and it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, think about the equipment you have. You go in with the sword of the Spirit and you unsheath it and you're ready to make peace through, through war, as it were. You're ready to go to battle and point this person to truth. And you're just, you, you feel confident. You're on fire for Jesus, as we used to say. You take your sword out and you're ready and all they do is this. Oh yeah? You, you, and you. You are this. You are that. You're judgmental. You're a hypocrite. You're a hater. Why don't you take the plank out of your own eye? Why don't you shut up and mind your own business? We've all been through that. And we're just trying to bring peace. And you know what typically happens? We go home, we stew, we sulk, and then we write them a heartfelt email. I'm really sorry how I made you feel. You're going to back down from that person who resists the truth of God, who resists the, the making of peace? I sure, I sure hope not. But sometimes that is our initial response. We are shocked by how hard it can be to make peace when it should be totally natural. And all they do is lift their finger and point at you. And all your shortcomings, real or imagined. And then we just put our tail between our legs and we slink away. Grow thick skin. Be ready to bear the reproaches of even fellow saints who are caught in a mindset of pride and unteachability and yet desperately need to hear the good word of peace. So grow thick skin. Have a willingness to be misunderstood. Have a willingness to not just try to make peace once, but a willingness to persevere, understanding that it will be a process. Understanding that people will be offended by what you say. You'll have to deal with all of the what-about-isms. Well, what about this in your life? What about that? 
the, the, the deflection, right? The, the, the refusal to take responsibility for your own actions. That's an obstacle to peace. But you have to keep applying that biblical light to the situation. You know, same thing. You go to a person, you try to correct them, you try to make peace if there's conflict. So what you're saying is, I'm a terrible person. You know, brother, I'm really concerned about you. You know, it's like the same thing at, at Planned Parenthood. Save the babies. Stop killing the babies. So what you're saying is you hate women and want to oppress them. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. I, <laughs> I said babies have a right to life. They are fellow image bearers. And you must not murder them because God's word says, says do, not, do not murder. Oh, man, I can't believe I'm hearing this. It's interesting that you, all I see out here are a bunch of white Christian males. You know, and on and on. Deflection, deflection, deflection. That takes some thick skin to go into the fray again and again and again. And I'm saying, do it because you are a peacemaker. That is your default setting. Should be anyway. You are called to make peace. God commands it. So get back in there. You know, you might have to dust yourself off and lick your wounds for a while and do some serious heart checks. But get back in there. Pursuing peace is a worthy effort because you're pursuing the default state. Remember, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have some love for that person when you pursue peace. Not just because you want them to see things your way, because you, but because you care about them seeing things the way God sees them. And you have a concern for their soul and spiritual well-being that you consider that they are, like, really, if, they, if, if Christ purchased them with His blood, if He laid down His life to purchase them and make them part of the body of Christ, they should, they should be precious in your sight. So have some patience. Grow some thick skin. And don't be dismissive of them. It's amazing how quickly we throw our hands up in the air and just say, ah, forget it. They're this hopeless situation. Like, just, just stop. Stop it. Value that person as God values them. See them as precious in God's sight and in your sight and pursue peace. This comes to the next one. Be ready to be brave. Right? Follows on the heels of what I just said. It takes courage. Right? Peacemaking is not for the faint of heart. It's for the pure of heart. But to do that, you have to be willing to go toward the conflict. Think about, we just, last week talked about, uh, you know, 9-11, anniversary of 9-11. And you think of all the people that were running away. You see these horrible videos and photographs of, of fire and smoke and, and shattered glass. And you see these crowds of people and they're running away from it. They're running away from the chaos. They're running away from the disaster and disorder and catastrophe. The peacemaker runs toward it. See, that's what you saw firemen and police officers, first responders, they all ran toward it. That's kind of what we are. But we are running toward one another to make peace, to rescue, to repair that relationship. And it's hard, absolutely. It's hard. You may be wounded. Your character may be attacked, often attacked wrongly, right? You'll be misrepresented. But it takes courage and I would say an intense love for God and an intense love for that person to be able to go to them and say, hey, I know something is wrong and I don't want it to be like this between us. How can we work together to pursue peace? How can we work together to bring God glory because He is the God of peace and He wants peace in our relationship and in our church? Come, let us reason together, right? This is God told Israel. And so, here is the finally... The reward of the peacemaker, and this takes us back to the beginning, the blessing, right? How is this blessing to be recognized? 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think this is the greatest designation in this entire list. What identifies us as a son of God is our ability to make peace. But look at this list. Verse 3, there's the kingdom of heaven. It's something that we have, for they shall be comforted, something we receive, shall inherit the earth, something we have. They shall be satisfied, something you receive, receive mercy, something we receive, shall see God, again, something we witness, something we recognize. But only in this shall they be called. Only in verse 9 is there a remark about our identity, an unmistakable identity, an unmistakable description of who the people of God are. We are sons of God. You realize being a son of God, that is, that is description, that is a description of the Christian telling us that that is basically the closest we can get to God without actually being God. Yeah, we are, we are created beings. But the fact that we are sons of God tells us that not only have we been regenerated and adopted, born again right into the family of God, but it tells us that we partake of the divine nature itself. And it is, and it is the, the peacemaker. It is being a peacemaker that removes any question about whether or not that is true of us. Are you a son of God? Am I a son of God? Well, I have a question for you. Are you a peacemaker? Do you bring shalom to bear where you go? That's the challenge. And for some of us, that's an indictment. Oh man, you know, when I think about that, yeah, I, I would call myself a son of God, but I don't really go out of my way to, to make or sustain peace between myself and even my Christian brothers and sisters. Quite frankly, I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of what people will think or I've dismissed this person. I don't have anything to do with them. Are, are, can you say that you're a son of God if you have that attitude? Can you? You answer that. But that is... But think of the privilege there, guys. Think of the blessing that it attached itself to this peacemaking process. You shall be called sons of God. By whom? I think it's intentionally vague. I think the unbeliever, for better or for worse, they will recognize, oh, this is a son of God. They live, they're a peacemaker. They may not, may not even understand it or have all the doctrinal frameworking, but yep, that person says they must be a son of God. They're out there trying to make peace. In our own midst, yep, that's a son of God. They go out of their way to bring shalom to relationships. They cannot sleep knowing if they are at odds with another Christian. And most importantly, you will be called a son of God by God. He has made you to be a peacemaker. He has made you to be a son of God. And that is a, that is a huge blessing that I do not think that the church appreciates. Blessed are the peacemakers for the, that's, that is the outcome. They shall be called sons of God. We know who are, what our, where our parentage is. We are not wandering to and fro like spiritual bastards wondering who our true father is. Yeah, I said bastard. We're not wondering who our father is. We know who our father is. We know to whom we belong. We know whose family that we're a part of. Our identity is solidified. It is made clear by the fact that we are bringing peace. We are bringing peace within our midst. That is the great connection between being a son of God and being a peacemaker. If God is our Father, Christ as our elder brother, we know who we are because we make peace. And so that's the final challenge this morning. right? You know it. If there is a compromise, 
if there is a lack of peace between yourself and someone who is in here, right, and you know it, then be a peacemaker and go to that person and work through your stuff. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree on every little nuance, right? It doesn't mean that you have to patch up everything and every little detail to where you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're picking every nit and bringing up old offenses. That's not the point of it. In fact, overall, the main point is to reaffirm your love for one another, to understand that, to, to ask for forgiveness and to, and to go forward understanding you're on the same team, you're in the same family, and you worship the same living God who saved you. That's the point. So if that's you this morning, the instruction's clear. Go and be a peacemaker. As a son of God, go to another son of God and reaffirm your love for one another. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being our peace, for bringing peace to us who were far away. That thousands, thousands of miles away, this message of peace began. An announcement of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Because you are a God of peace who reconciles yourself to us and us to you and man to man. And Lord, sometimes we just we are so content and sinfully so to wait it out and to not pursue peace. And Lord, we it's hard to know in any church to what extent that exists, but the challenge is there. If there is a compromise of peace or a complete lack thereof, if there is any war, Lord, let us know. Remind us that that is not natural. That is a deviation. That it is a supernatural state that as fellow believers in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we are at peace because You have said so. And so let us not shame Your name. Let us not bring reproach to the glory of our Savior by refusing to make peace with one another. O Lord, move us to repentance. Crush us in in spirit if that is the case. Bring us back to that first step. May we, may we understand our impoverishment through the lack of peace. May we, may we be poor in spirit and humbly, first and foremost, go to You and repent from this resistance of being a peacemaker and to ask You for every, to endow us with every grace and courage and humility to go to that person or persons and restore that peace once again. We know, Lord, that You would have it so. We have every reason to pursue peace. And so make it true of our church, Lord. We, we, we pour out our hearts to You and ask You that that would be the case. We want to be an effective church. We want to be a church that has truly seen God. We want to be faithful ambassadors of shalom and bring peace to our city because many are being reached and many are believing the Gospel. And Lord, how can we bring peace out there if there is none in our midst? So please, God, hear our prayer. Be quick to answer. And help us to be faithful to that calling. Above all, God, we want Your Son to be honored. He is our King. He is our King of peace. And so we want to be faithful stewards of that peace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.